That way you don't have to take notes. Okay. Thank you. All right. So, Susan, welcome. You've been telling me that you spent a number of years practicing various things, but when you started practicing according to um, the actual sutta itself, that things are changing for you. And so I'd like to start off with the introduction of showing you how all of this stuff fits together in a package deal. There are a number of suttas. In fact, uh, we've had a discussion recently of how many suttas can we find that has the famous statement that the Buddha teaches only one thing. He only teaches one thing. Now, look how many things are in the teachings of the Buddhist and Western Buddhism. Gosh, there's all kinds of stuff. But in the teaching of the Buddha, there's only one thing and he teaches, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha, and Aroda. Now, we have to understand Dukkha, Dukkha, and Aroda in the sense of that it is right now Dukkha, and then immediately right now Dukkha, and Aroda. The way that it's practiced in the West is Dukkha, Dukkha, Dukkha. Give me some Dukkha. I want to look at Dukkha. I got to go deep into Dukkha. I'm going to inspect and get great deep insights out of this Dukkha. And then I'm going to look at some more Dukkha that's associated with that and get to the bottom of this Dukkha hole. All right. That's how it's practiced in the West. Almost as if it, uh, Buddhism was taught in some engineering school or something. Um, and so they're missing out on that Dukkha Naroda part that is uh, part of the path. So this is the first thing. We can also look at other examples of that one teaching. The one that I like is don't worry, be happy. Because that has the immediacy of don't worry right now, be happy right now. So where Dukkha Dukkha Naroda looks like a, uh, a journey of a thousand years or maybe a thousand, hundred thousand hours of meditation practice or something, and eventually you'll get some this, rather than let's do it right now. Yeah. Um, Goenka had a phrase that I can see that's right in there with that, and that phrase is, never mind, start again. Never mind that the mind has wandered away. Never mind that to start again back into freedom. Mm -hmm. So that's the whole teaching of the Buddha. Now we can look at it unfolding that uh, that one teaching into the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths, the word Dukkha actually is mistranslated in Western Buddhism as is so many other words. I think that that's probably one of the fundamental problems with Western Buddhism is bad translations. And the reason that there are bad translations is because um, to do a really, really good translation, it takes three skills. You have to really know the language that it's being translated out of. You have to really know the language that you're translating into. And you actually really have to know the subject. The original translations out of Pali into the English were missing two of those ingredients. They didn't know the language and they didn't know what they were translating. And so they had a lot of uh, mistakes that were made. And so the context that they left it in was a Christian context. And so Christian uh, has Christianity has huge influences on Western Buddhism that it doesn't have at all in Asia. And the first one would be, in fact, I could give you a whole long list of words that translated wrongly that 
put things way off in the wrong direction. And one of them we look at is this word dukkha, because it's been translated as suffering. As if here we are, each one of us, all on our own cross with nails and ropes and all of that, and there we are stuck and we're suffering. Okay. But the word dukkha doesn't mean that. It means actually just simply dissatisfaction. That we can actually understand it better by noting that it's got an opposite. And the opposite of dukkha is sukha. Now, uh, in the Thai language, Duke and Sukha are opposites, and in the Gujarati language, Duki and Suki are opposites. So what that means is, is that um, Dukkha means is that we're unsatisfied, that there's no pleasure, that things are dry. And Sukha means that things are pleasurable, that they are nice, that we're satisfied. And in fact, we could go so far as to do that one translation of Dukkha means dissatisfaction and Sukha means satisfaction. And guess what? Satisfaction is a skill to be developed according to the Anapanasati Sutta. It's a skill to be developed, to bring your mind into a state of comfort, to bring your mind into a state of safety and security so that you can then help bring the mind into a state of being satisfied that right now everything is okay we can be satisfied because when you are satisfied guess what you're not in dukkha you're in sukha which actually means the third noble truth now one of the ways that western buddhism is normally taught is they do their best to ignore the third noble truth they talk about it they may chant it a bit but nobody talks about uh, it in the sense of, hey, there it is. Get yourself into it. Do it right now. Right? It was always planned way off that uh, Duke and Naroda uh, is going to be way off into the future. That you got to suffer first. Mm-hmm. You got to put in your time, all of that kind of stuff. Well, that's very Western mentality, very Western thought process. Also, words like um, concentration, which is now a major part of the teachings of uh, meditation in the West, where in fact the, uh, the, the word concentration comes out of the word samadhi. But samadhi doesn't mean concentration at all. What it means, in fact, is gathering all of the factors together. So if you're going to have a particular mental state that is known by these factors, then you need to to practice the skill of getting those factors together. So when they do come together as a group, now you have something. I'll use the example of baking a cake. Imagine that you're baking a cake and you've got all the ingredients and there you are mixing it together and you look around, where's the sugar? Got no sugar. Okay, well, if we got no sugar, that's okay. We'll make a cake without sugar. And now you have a Mahasi cake. (laughs) It's dry. It is not delicious, but it's cake. All right. So that's what's happened is, is that this missing ingredient or two, the sugar, has been removed from the teachings of the Buddha by the Westerners, or basically the Asians never bothered uh, so much because they've got all the sugar they need. But in the West, the whole mindset is capitalistic, dry, 
competition. And so we began to see meditation that way also. But in fact, that's one of the big, big issues of meditation is the competition who can sit the longest, who can sit up the straightest, and all of this kind of uh, competitive stuff that uh, is part of Western mentality that's got nothing to do with um, the real teachings of the Buddha. But in fact, it would be kind of ridiculous for us to compete and compare with each other over who's the happiest right now. That doesn't make any sense, does mm -hmm. it? No, not a bit. You're either happy or you're not happy. So um, the whole teachings of the Buddha then have been, uh, let us say, not taken as an actual whole, but they have been taking bits and pieces of Buddhism and plugging it into a Western model, rather than bringing in the whole show. Because the whole show is actually quite simple. If we come to it from the whole show, instead of little bits and bat, drabs and pieces and, and uh, points of wisdom seems to be what Buddhism has become in the West. But that's not a bad thing because people are beginning to wake up. They're just not waking up as fast as they could if they knew what to do. Right. So. Uh, the whole quality then is to get ourselves into a state of the third noble truth and that there is a method to do this. That in fact, the Eightfold Noble Path is immediately mistaken and people make great mistakes with it simply because it's translated as the word path. Thinking that you got to go someplace to do something. To where in fact, uh, if you can think of it like this, that in order to get into the golden chamber of the mind, all you have to do is to put in the key, turn the lock, turn the handle and push the door open. And that's all there is to it. But most Westerners think, yeah, I know that's all there is to it, but that door is 10,000 miles from here and I got to take a path to get to the door. All right. For in fact, the door is right here. There's no path to take. But there is the method of turning the, the uh, putting in the key, turning the key, turning the handle, and pushing the door open, which is basically anapanasati. Actually, this uh, is actually the Eightfold Noble Path, um, or the Eightfold Noble Method. But let's look at the putting in the key, the turning the lock, the turning the handle, and pushing the door open is actually not eight points. That's even fewer than eight points. So let's look at the Eightfold Noble Method because it's not a path to go someplace. It's a method to change where you are right now. It's like just the difference between standing up and sitting down. You don't have to go anywhere to stand up or to sit down. There you are. Um, and so uh, the Eightfold Noble Path starts off with right noble views. Actually, before we talk about the Eightfold Noble Path, I'd like to mention that there are, in fact, two paths. There is an Eightfold Path, and then there is the Eightfold Noble Method. The method is noble, the path is ordinary, done by ordinary people with ordinary minds who come to Buddhism. And when they come, they come and hear it in the sequence of Sila, Samati, Panya. Have you ever heard of that sequence, Sila Samati Panya? Yeah, I've heard those words. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the ordinary path. 
that's the way that ordinary people get started on the path where um, uh, the Siva that we're talking about can either be good behavior, that you're a little goody two-shoes for years and years, and then you can practice samadhi is the way that a lot of people think about it. But basically, the sila means that you only need to get in seclusion. If you're not around other people, you're not going to kill any people. If you're not around people, you're not going to steal anything from them. If you're not around them, you're not going to abuse them. So getting yourself into seclusion is sila enough. And then the next one is the samadhi. A lot of people think that's concentration, but no, really what samadhi here means, it means to gather the factors together that we need so that then uh, another way of talking about that is purification of the mind. And then the third one would be purification of view, which would be the wisdom part. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> it has been historically taught that way except that the transition from the ordinary noble uh excuse me the ordinary wisdom to convert that into noble wisdom is the place where everybody is missing it they don't have that changeover um uh, and so uh i po the abbot of what's doing uh has asked me to let's not do the normal one-two punch of Buddhism, teaching it like this until people are ready, and then we'll teach them this. Let's jump right into the super mundane immediately. Let's go right to the noble automatically and, and not uh, do it in regard of the ordinary path because people can practice the ordinary path their whole lives and not get anywhere. Or maybe they practice their whole life not getting anywhere, thinking that they will have a rebirth or a re-life into the next life, and then they'll practice that whole life without getting anywhere. Uh, and, and so um, basically what part of the noble is, is coming out of magical thinking and coming into the reality that only I can solve my internal mental problem. Now, our whole society is built upon the premise that you need help. Christianity teaches that you need a Jesus or something. You don't have a plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard of your on your truck. You're messed up, right? <laughs> you gotta you gotta have something, right? And in our society, you gotta have money. You gotta have wealth. You gotta have prestige. You gotta have a title. You gotta have this, that, and the other thing to be okay. And yet so many people have all of those things and they still don't feel okay. So that's the, the ordinary way that we're looking for it is to get something, to gain something, to gain help. I need help to get out of my mess. So I need a brick bat or I need a dagger or I need a, uh, a textbook or I need a Dhamma book or I need something to get out. And that, um, this is the ordinary mindset, and you could say that this is actually one of the levels of doubt, the first level of doubt. The first level of doubt is, who can I get to clean up this mess? Imagine that you walked into the house, you open the door, and the whole room is a wreck. Everything that was in that room is still in that room. It's just all over helter-skelter. What's the first thought that we have? Something like what happened here or who made this mess, right? 
because we want somebody else to clean it up. We want it back the way that it was, but we won't, don't want to take the effort to do it. So that's the first level of doubt is who can we get to, to solve our problem? Can I get a doctor? How about a guru? Maybe a teacher, a priest, anybody, a lawyer? You know, so you can see all of these professions that have built up over time in our society that fulfills the role of the for the individual who cannot help themselves. Mm -hmm. In this, we can't do that. An example would be that when a student is learning to play the piano, the piano teacher can listen to what the piano student is doing. She can watch his fingers. She can notice what this and that and changes his behavior and whatnot. Well, we can change, we can observe behavior in a person, but nobody knows what's going on in anyone else's mind. Nobody knows what anybody else is thinking. All we know is uh, their behavior. But if you've got a whole room full of meditation students and everybody's sitting there as still as they can, you don't know who's thinking what. All you can do is you can kind of guess that there's a whole lot of commotion going on. <laughs> But everybody is trying to hide that emotion. And so with this, we have to come to the second uh, kind of doubt, which is, in fact, the second noble truth. The second noble truth itself has an underlying important teaching in it that almost never by, nobody ever recognizes. Uh, the Mahayanas have gone so far as to take it down to just one word as if uh, uh, a car can operate with just one tire. And what is that one word they have? They say that the, the cause of suffering is clinging. Mm. Okay, but that's not at all what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught it as there is greed, ill will, and delusion. Now, this delusion that we're talking about is real delusion. It is not ignorance. There are two kinds of ignorance. There is wise ignorance and there is foolish ignorance, which would be the delusion. So we're not talking about simply just don't knowing because it, you can be wisely not knowing. In fact, if you don't know something and you want to know it, you could Google it or you could go get the information. But if you think you already know the answer, you're not going to bother to get the real information. You're going to continue with whatever you believed, or how wrong that might be. And so this is the real issue of the second noble truth, is we think we know when in fact we don't, and we don't bother to check it out. Mm -hmm. So this is where Anapanasati comes in, is we need to do some investigation to find out what's right and what's real or not. But there's more important underlying teaching in that and that is the actual cause of dissatisfaction is something that each individual does for themselves each person causes themselves dissatisfaction when they want things they don't have each individual causes their own dissatisfaction doesn't come from the sky doesn't come from the tsunami there's no such thing as an act of god to make me feel bad i choose to do that ignorantly this means that the second noble truth is really all about personal responsibility. Going back to that first issue of the doubt of who can I get to fix my wagon? The answer is ain't nobody gonna fix your wagon. You got two choices. You can either get in and ride it broken or you can fix it or you can walk away from it. Those are the, those are the three choices actually. So 
Uh, but most people want that fourth choice. Maybe I can get somebody else to fix my wagon. <laughs> and that's and our whole society is built upon that that delusion. Mm-hmm. So uh, the second noble truth is teaching us that we have to do it ourselves. So that leaves us a second level of doubt. That second level of doubt is, well, if it's up to me, am I up to the task? That is the major issue. That, in fact, is am I up to the task is the issue that every student has to deal with. And if they deal with it in a practice to where they don't get the results that they're looking for, then they keep coming up with the conclusion of that doubt that I'm not up to it. I can't fix myself. I can't get anybody else to do it and I can't fix it myself. That particular kind of position is kind of a deep despair when we recognize that I'm I'm stopped. I can't get anybody else to do it and I can't do it myself. I'm out of here, I'm dead, right? This is uh, what you could refer to as the dark night of the soul, but that's only because the students are practicing incorrectly. If they are practicing correctly, then they begin to build confidence that they can, in fact, do this. And so uh, let's uh, go now to from the second to the third noble truth and recognizing that any time that you are free from greed, free from ill will, free from delusion, then you're free. That the third noble state is some not some magical state that's way off into the future. You have been in that state probably ten or a million times, ten thousand or a million times in your lifetime, but you didn't notice it. That we tend to only notice things when it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've got a I've got a power supply that just got an exposure to it, and whenever that power, whenever that wire touches the skin. If the, if the power is not there, I don't notice it at all. It doesn't feel anything. But if that power is on it and then it gives a little tingle of the shock, I don't like that. Okay. What I'm getting at is, is that we tend to remember the things that we don't like and we tend to forget about the things that we do like because it doesn't mean anything. If I like it, then it doesn't mean anything. If I don't like it, now I've got to do something about it. It may be dangerous. It may be deadly. Mm-hmm. And so we tend to remember throughout our whole lives all of the bad stuff that happened to us, and we don't remember much of all of the good stuff that happened. Now we're going to start paying close attention to all the good stuff that not only is happening surreptitiously, but it's also the things that we're directly creating. And this is the third noble truth, is to be able to say, yes, everything is okay. Everything is fine. I really am satisfied. I am not in a state of dupe. Now, the Western mentality is saying, wait a minute, I don't want an ordinary okayness. I want something special. Do you hear what I just said? I want something special. That's the problem because they feel unsatisfied. I want something special I don't have right now. And so that's the state of dukkha. If you can get yourself into a state of satisfaction, it doesn't matter how small the satisfaction is. Satisfaction is satisfaction. And we want to use it as a seed and get it to grow. Mm -hmm. But if saying I've got joy, but it's not enough joy, that's just being more dukkha. That's been being dissatisfied. 
rather than, yeah, I've got a little bit of joy and that great. Now that's been satisfied with it. So this is the change of attitude that brings about that third noble truth. It's really an attitude change. And so let's look at the Eightfold Noble Method for a moment uh, and break it into groups. But the Buddha, in fact, when he introduced it in detail, he says, listen carefully and I will teach you about right organization of mind with its supports and features. Okay, which means now that we have three. We have right unification of mind, with its supports, the things that are going to support it and bring it up, and the features that are going to be there once you have uh, the right unification of mind. Now, we're not talking about right unification of mind that is permanent, that somebody has no unification of mind for years and years and years, and then they step on a nail or their teacher hits a with a thin stick or something like that, and boop, and they wake up. And now everything is new. And the mind now is organized. That's not how it is at all. But in fact, sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you're okay and sometimes you're not. And we're going to start working with sometimes you are okay. And sometimes you're not. We're not going to continue to dwell on the not and start a, a dwelling on the okayness of it. <clears throat> now. This, this right unification of mind, the noble unification of mind is often referred to as uh, concentration, right noble concentration. That's a huge mistake. Because if in fact somebody did have right noble concentration, they, they wouldn't even go around in their life. They just have to sit someplace in samadhi for the 12 hours, 16 hours a day. They may even have to sit up sleeping if you're going to work on concentration. But that's not the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha did not teach concentration. He taught samadhi. And samadhi means organization. So a very quick way is imagine that you've got an alarm clock. Maybe an old-fashioned alarm clock. But it's been to the jeweler. And the jeweler has cleaned every gear. He has oiled it. He has put it back together correctly. And it is functioning correctly. That clock then with all of its parts and pieces and component pieces together would be samati. It's working. Mm -hmm. Now the Westerner wants to make that clock concentrated. The only way to do that is take a sledgehammer to that alarm clock. Now we can get it down to a smaller package, but it's not going to function correctly if it's concentrated. All right, so now we have to understand that the Buddha is not preaching about uh, a concentrated mind. He's talking about an organized mind. How is the mind organized? Well, it's going to be organized with four features that are on the Eightfold Noble list of items. And when we practice these four items, then the right unification of mind comes about automatically with those four features. Once the mind is automatically uh, in, or once the mind is in a state of samadhi or in a state of correct organization and functioning correctly, that means that we don't want anything, that we're good, we're satisfied. If we don't want anything, then you're very unlikely to kill anyone to get what we want if we don't want anything. 
we're unlikely to steal anything if we don't want anything. But in fact, we're want, we're secluded now, not just from other people, but we're secluded from wanting. And because we're secluded from wanting, our sila now winds up being perfect because the mind is noble. At any one particular time, when a child is in the shop and about to see, about to uh, to shoplift something, and then they see that the clerk is watching them or something like that, and they have a wake-up moment, that's the moment of samatic. This is dangerous. I should not do that. I don't want this item that bad. And they take their hand off of it, and they don't take it. They don't steal it. Okay? That would be a samatic moment. The mind was organized well enough prevent themselves from doing something wrong. And we want to try to cultivate that mentality so that we feel the mind is organized and we don't want anything, which means that now we're very unlikely to harm someone. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the path then. So let's go back and look at the, uh, uh, the supports or the requisites for the right organization of mind. The first item on the list is right noble view. This is wisdom. Remember before we talked about Stila Samati Panya? Well, the noble path starts with Panya and it winds up in Sila. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so here Panya Samati Sila is the actual noble path to where the where the ordinary path is Sila Panya or Sila Samati Panya. That's the ordinary path. The noble path starts with wisdom. Now, what the word uh, when we start with wisdom or we start with right noble view, basically, you called me. That's an indication that you had right noble view. Let's get this stuff straightened out. Let's mm -hmm. fix this. Okay, so that's the right noble view from the beginning. But we need to develop that right noble view over and over and over and over again. And also, the right noble view is not about what we think is right or wrong. That would be holding a viewpoint or having a concept or a belief. What the, the word uh, dittis, uh, sama area ditti, a right noble view, basically is not a view at all. It's a viewing. It's an investigating. It's a verb, not a noun. It's not an eye noble view that we hold. It's the fact that we are looking, we're investigating, we're noticing, we are uh, paying attention to it. This is what right noble view is. But uh, wrong view and ordinary right view are actually viewpoints. Uh, an example of wrong view would be, in fact, the, the number one motto word of wrong view is I can get away with it. No matter what, I can get away with it. I can kill 500 cows on this side of the river, across the river and kill 500 more cows on this side of the river and it doesn't mean anything. Now that's looking at it from a very nihilistic point of view. Uh, and it's not taking into consideration that the owners of those cows may have something to say or do about the fact <laughs> that you're not killing them. Mm -hmm. right. But it's only from the perspective of if I can get away with it because there's no big authority figure out there who's going to crush me for doing all the bad actions. So this is the, the world of the mafia, the drive-by shooting, all of that kind of stuff, or shoplifting, harsh language. 
telling dirty jokes, uh, malicious gossip. In fact, uh, the U.S. tends to be very excellent at malicious gossip, talking about a third person in order to put them down. Oh, he's a bad person. You and me are okay, but that person's a bad person. So that kind of language then, when the mind is noble, we don't engage in that kind of language because we don't want anything. We don't have to put anyone down or any of this. Okay, so um, basically one's right view or investigation only happens at a certain time. When does it happen? It happens whenever you remember to look, whenever you remember to investigate. If you don't remember to do it, you don't do it. So this is where sati comes in, is this is the waking up. Now, in English, the word sati has been translated into mindfulness. The word mindfulness, I don't even know what it means. I never heard the word mindfulness before until it had anything to do with Buddhism. <laughs> And that's not what the word means. The, mean, the, the, the word sati means to wake up mm. and take a look. The word mindfulness has some other quality in the sense of mind your P's and Q's, or maybe you're supposed to actually pay attention. Let us say you're, you're a watchmaker and you've got to actually watch what you're doing when you're making that watch. That would be a kind of mindfulness. Okay where sati would be for the watchmaker to be aware of how he feels while he's making that watch. So this is the distinction between mindfulness as practiced in the West, that mindfulness is about an activity to where sati has to do with looking at what the mind is doing, to wake up to see what the mind is doing. And so, in fact, we could use that expression to wake up and to smell the coffee. I like that one because the wake up is the sati and the smelling of the coffee is actually an in-breath mm. as well as olfactory in the sense that you're in the senses right now. To wake up and smell the coffee means to come out of your dreams mm -hmm. and be in reality. So this is what we are practicing with sati is to wake up so that we could do the investigation. And sometimes we can wake up and do the investigation and say, wow, isn't that nice? Everything is cool. Not a thought in the world. Everything is hunky-dory. Everything is easy-peasy. But often we wake up and we recognize that the thought that we have in the mind is unwholesome. It's not an easy thought. It's a job to do or a problem to solve or... Um, Basically, it can be a feeling of dis-ease that we want to get rid of, and we're thinking about what we can do to get rid of this feeling of disease. Yeah. Except that the thought of looking for a cure is what causes the feeling of disease, the wandering around searching for something, rather than sitting down and saying, let me look at this feeling of disease and see if I can breathe into it, relax, and just enjoy the moment. And let that dis-ease subside. Now, this dis-ease that we're talking about is also referred to as anxiety, low-grade fear, stress, um, a feeling of insecurity, a feeling of needing to get something done, and all of this. And normally those things come from little thoughts that we have, and we do a thought and a feel. 
then we have another thought and another feel. And sometimes the thought is, oh, you ought to go brush your teeth, or you ought to go take a bath, or you ought to go get your license, or you ought to go meditate. And that you ought to go do something then is met with the internal representation of, no, I don't want to. I don't want to go meditate right now. I don't want to go get the license. I don't want to do it. I don't want to. And now we're feeling bad because we've ordered ourselves around and now we're being rebellious against it. We'll go into the details of that in, in a little while, but the important point right now is to recognize that we create our own misery with our thoughts. And these thoughts that we're creating are actually unwholesome thoughts. And that to, uh, what we're going to start practicing is having wholesome thoughts to remember, to investigate, check out what kind of thought we have, and to change it from an unwholesome thought into a wholesome thought. And to feel good about it. Mm -hmm. Because that's in fact what we're doing. Uh, one of the ways of saying it is, is that we have been uh, talking ourselves into feeling bad for our whole lives. Now it's time to start talking yourself into feeling good. We have been taught to feel bad by all of the adults around us. When we were little kids, everybody goes around feeling bad, teaching the kids how to feel bad. Do your homework. Pick up your books. Do your ABCs. Put down the cell phone and clean your room. You know, all of that kind of language that we learned as kids. And so we learned that kind of um, uh, authority uh, pushing us around, telling us what to do. And then we repeat it in our own mind. You ought to do this. You ought to go on a diet. You ought to go buy some clothes. You ought to do this. You ought to go get a job. You ought to, ought to, ought to, ought to. You should, 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 should. This can be referred to as the parent ego state or the superego in uh, Freud's language, but it's the language that we learned from adults when we were kids. And now we're repeating that stuff without checking it out. We just brought it in as kids without doing any discernment at all. But now we're going to start looking at that language with discernment to check, is that thought worth having right now? And so, uh, the example is the student is sitting watching YouTube and he has the thought you ought to be meditating right now. And then the thought after that or the feeling after that is, oh, I don't want to I don't want to meditate. I want to watch the, the video. And then the next thought, you ought to be meditating right now. And the guy says, oh, I don't want to meditate. I want to watch the video. Well, guess what? He's not watching the video. He's caught in this dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> between does he want to meditate or not? Right. The right answer to that would when you say, oh, you ought to be meditating right now. The answer to that is, oh, yeah, good advice. But we don't do it like that. We resist, we rebel, and, and we feel guilty and, um, uh, and all of this. And so we wind up in a dialogue within that is uncomfortable. It's not a satisfying relationship. It's a, you go do this, no, I don't want to. You go do this, no, I don't want to. You got to write that email, no, I don't want to. All right. And so having now the thought of, never mind, I don't have to do that right now. 
And, but we're doing that happily and we're doing it not out of the feeling states, but we're doing it out of our wisdom, out of the adult, uh, the, the real boss that we don't use very much. That in fact, what Anapanasati is really all about is putting the frontal cortex, our wisdom mind, in gear intentionally mm-hmm. by having wholesome thoughts. And so by having one wholesome thought after another, after another, after another, we begin to gain confidence. The confidence in the Pali, the word is shraddha or sada. Actually in Sanskrit, it's shraddha. And in uh, Pali, it's sada. And what that means is not faith. It's translated wrongly as the word faith. And some people get really stuck on that word faith. Now, the word faith has to do with the fact that you need to believe this in order to get a uh, some sort of external benefit. But you have absolutely no evidence that it's true. OK, but confidence has to do with mounting evidence. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, this is what we're really looking for is the mounting of the evidence. Now, the first part of the evidence can be uh, can be logical or it can be uh, friendship in the sense that part of my job is to give people the confidence that they can practice and get it done. But the real confidence is going to come from within. The more successful you are, the more the confidence is growing. Okay, but we have to take the right effort to change what's unwholesome into wholesome. So now we've got the package together, right, Sati, to remember to do a right view, to really investigate, look what's going on, make a discernment. Is this wholesome or what? And then we take the right effort to change it to the wholesome. And once we can do that and we know that we can do it, comes the confidence. This is the last piece of the puzzle, the Samasankapa, or one's right attitude. Because mm-hmm. we were raised from childhood being a victim. Every little tender infant is completely a victim. If you throw that baby in the trash dump, it's just not going to pop out and go to town. Right? We're completely dependent when we are born. And we recognize that, that when we're two years old, we can barely stand. Everybody else is walking around. They're yelling at us and we're feeling afraid. When we have to go out, they hold our hand. The furniture is too big and everything points to the fact that we're a victim, that we are out of control, that we have, we're not the boss here. And so every little child then is trying to regain or to gain that, that sense of well-being but they're coming to it from the perspective of being a victim. That one, in fact, can can say that the whole point of a human being growing up is to come out of their childhood victim state, being dependent upon others, into being completely uh, mentally on his own. That they've grown up. They're now no longer a victim. Now they're the winner. This, that winning is actually the confidence that we're talking about, the samasankapa, that goes along with the practice of anapanasati. So when you recognize that the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path have actually, is a, is a method, and we're going to apply that method with anapanasati. 
that Buddha only taught one practice, then it's Anapanasati, but it's a complete practice. Mm-hmm. So you can say, well, if uh, Anapanasati is a complete practice, then any kind of practices that have a couple of pieces gone is all we could think of it would be Anapanasati almost. Or you could say that no, if a missing ingredient is missing, it's not going to be the same thing. If you leave sugar out of a cake, it's not going to be a cake. It's going to be right. something else. If yeah. you leave the engine out of your car, it's not going to be transportation. And so uh, there's a lot of pieces missing and a lot of different practices of meditation. But when we put all of the pieces back together, that's where we have Anapanasati. Now, uh, Anapanasati is actually arranged according to the Satipatthana. Because in the old, old times, um, not just in India, but Greece had this also, that there were four primary elements. You had solid or earth, you had liquid or water, you had air or gas, and then you had fire. These are the four primary elements for the ancients. Now we've got more than 92 of them, but all of those, <laughs> uh, those four elements still are quite appropriate in the sense that, uh, but the Buddha made a different thing. Instead of looking at it on the outside of water on the outside and uh, air on the outside, etc., because that was the practice of meditation in the time of the Buddha was external objects and they still do it. Crystal gazing, looking at a bowl of water like Nostradamus, fire gazing, fire meditations, casino, looking at a distance, Stargazing, all of this kind of stuff is very, very old and still done. What the Buddha did that was so remarkable is he took that stuff and turned it from the outside, put it on the inside. Let's look at the four elements that we have on the inside. We have the body, we have the emotions, we have uh, the mind itself, which is kind of a furnace. And then we have the smoke that comes out of the smokestack of the mind that we can call thoughts. Thoughts are like the clouds in the air or like the smoke in the air after a fire. And the fire is the mind itself. That in fact, uh, uh, even Achan Tanisro has written a book, uh, Mind Like Fire Unbound. That's the name of his book. That hmm. when you have, when the fire is let go, then that's, it becomes a mind. Mind is fire. And so, uh, in the practice of Anapanasati, we're going to practice all four foundations of mindfulness. And in fact, we practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana, for the four foundations of mindfulness. And we practice the four foundations of mindfulness for the fulfillment of that Eightfold Noble Path. But when it is fulfilled, Uh, The completion of it is called the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment in the Pali is the Sambhojana. So we practice the path, but when we develop those skills of the path, the completed skills now are the seven factors of enlightenment. So the sati becomes unremitting sati and the investigation becomes unremitting investigation and the uh, right effort becomes actually unremitting energetic. That we're actually, in the, in the beginning, it was a lot of work, but now it's easy peasy because we've practiced and we've gotten the skill up. Uh, and, and so 
the next item on the list of the seven factors of enlightenment is unremitting pity sukha. Well, there's that word sukha again. Okay, unremitting joy and pleasure. The next one on the list is unremitting peacefulness or calmness, which is in fact also the step four of Anapanasati. So if we're practicing to relax the body, then we are uh, through uh, the practice of the mental states, relaxing the mind, the body relaxes also. So this is a whole lot to do with relaxation, rest, peace, easy peasy. And yet you'll find in Western Buddhism, meditation practice of how long can you sit? Mm-hmm. At least sit long enough to get into pain. Well, if you're pain, that's not comfortable. And they say, well, just look at the pain. Well, that's not the practice of the Buddha to look at the pain. That in fact, what we can say is pain and pain is going to come on its own enough. There's no reason to create it. There's no reason to do it directly that we want to, in fact, uh, let us say, when we were children, we played, and the playing was a skill development time for things when we were adult, and the only difference is, is that when we're children, things are not important, and when we're adults, things are important. But for kids, nothing is important. They can just play. Okay. Another way of looking at it is that any skill that you develop has a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. In the beginning, you want to make it as easy as possible to develop that skill. Mm-hmm. Once we have that skill developed, then we want to try to test it. There's going to be dukkha enough to do the testing. And an example of that, Buddha Dasa says, is that when one is ill, when the body is sick, that's a really good opportunity to practice. Yeah. But if you don't have the skills of the, of Anapanasati, then that then it's going to be really hard to practice while we're sick. Because when we're sick, we naturally feel miserable, mm-hmm. and we talk ourselves into how bad we feel. Okay, so we need to start off in a way to make it very very easy for ourselves. So we want to get away from it all, get into seclusion, and practice. It's also like going to the gym for the first time. You don't go to the other end of the gym and pick up a hundred kilo dumbbell your first day in the place. No, you start off simple. So this is the way that we want to practice is getting it simple. Then we develop the skills and then later we can use those skills when we need them most. And so that's where sati is. In fact, I talk to the students about it like this is that sati is needs to be, it's like Murphy's law. Have you ever heard of Murphy's law? Mm-hmm. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And then the last part of it is, and it will go wrong at the worst possible moment. Okay. So we could change that into um, anything that I can forget, I will forget, and I'll forget it at the time I need it the most. Mm. So that's sati. We want to develop the skill of sati so that when we need it the most, we can remember it and it will be there. Mm-hmm. And so we need to practice it over and over and over and over again so that it's going to be there just when we need it most. And so the place to practice sati is the in-breath to make sure that it's a long, deep in-breath and to practice sati on the out-breath 
to make sure that it's a long, deep out-breath. Relaxing, deep, easy-going breathing. We want to maintain that because the normal breathing is conservative, and it also has the quality of freezing in the sense that if we have a, uh, a negative or a dangerous thought, it will affect our breathing. Mm -hmm. We will shut down. And so we don't generally breathe very well. But if we can remember to take a deep breath, then we can take a deep breath. But it takes a little bit of effort to do that in the beginning. But then after a while, it becomes really easy to think about a deep breath. And yeah, it feels so good. All right. So Anapanasati then practices the Sambhojana, excuse me, the, uh, the, the Satipatthana the four foundations for the seven factors of enlightenment, but we would practice the seven factors of enlightenment for the final goal, if there is a final goal, would be knowledge and deliverance. That in fact, it's not a final goal, it's more of the outcome. Mm. It's not a goal to have, it's just the outcome of correct practice. And knowledge and deliverance uh, can be, we could bring the Eastern, excuse me, the Western word enlightenment in here because it's got some value. The Buddha did not talk about enlightenment. In fact, the word enlightenment comes from the French Revolution and a war between science and the Catholic Church. <laughs> and, uh, a whole lot of big, heavy duty stuff that was going on. But for some reason, the word enlightenment has gotten stuck on the Buddhas. So let's look at it. The word enlightenment, the key word is light. Well, daylight, turning on the light, just some light on the subject. That means the knowledge or the wisdom that comes from the investigation. That we can, when we look and we look clearly and we look carefully and we continue to look, we can begin to see really what's going on. And when we see what's going on, basically what we're seeing is the, the baggage. We're seeing the junk. And so we're going to take that baggage once we see it, we're going to throw it out. That's the deliverance part, that we're going to become not heavy anymore. We're going to become lightweight. Things are not heavy. We're, in fact, going back from the time when we were uh, going back to the time when we were children, where things were not important and that we could play. But in fact, one of the major mistakes that Sorry, we make I just have to plug this in here. I can go ahead. I got you. I'm watching. Okay. Just want to make sure it's running low on battery. Well, Thanks. All right. So as as we continue the practice, we begin to change the mind state into wholesome thoughts, one after another, after another. When we change those thoughts by gladdening the mind, we change the way that we feel. Mm -hmm. When we change the way that we feel, we come into a state of satisfaction. We come into a state of feeling secure. We feel comfortable. And when we know that we can do this, now we gain the attitude of, I can do it. This is the sukha, and now we're adding pity. The pity is actually the winner's attitude. It's the change of lineage or the change of attitude from being a victim 
into being a champion. The Buddha was known as a lion. He was known as a bull. He was known as someone who was supremely confident. And this is what we're looking for. Instead of being uh, angry at him because he's confident or jealous of him because he's confident, he's inviting us. You can be confident, too, because you could look at what you're doing. You could look at what you're go uh, going through and you can drop that baggage. This is the whole point, dropping the baggage. So a really important way of looking at Buddhism is, is that there is nothing to be attained. This is always 100% a dead loss. This is an emptying out. It is not a gaining. There are no attainments. And yet the Western mentality is all about goals and attainments. And yeah. so some people want to be soda pot. They want to be uh, uh, first jhana. They want uh, to be nibbana. They want this, that, and the other thing. And wanting something is dukkha. Wanting something that you don't have is unsatisfying. And this is the major problem with the Western mentality is, is that they're practicing meditation to get something. Where in fact, what we're really doing is we're practicing Anapanasati in order to get rid of the junk, get rid of the baggage. This is house cleaning. This <laughs> to clean the place out, to get rid of the junk. And we do that, not in a great big way, but in just a little way, just this thought, just this one, and retrain the mind with this thought. An example would be, imagine that you've got a weed that you want to remove, but this weed is stuck in uh, the sidewalk or in, let us say, coming out of the pavement. And that because the city doesn't want you to dig up the pavement, we can't do anything about that um, uh, weed that's going out. We can't get down to the root of it. But what we can do every time that the weed comes up, throws up a shoot, we can whack it off at the surface. Pretty soon, if we keep whacking that weed off over and over and over again, it's going to get weaker. It's not going to be putting up so many shoots, and eventually the root will die, and we never had to pull the tree up or never had to pull the thing up at all. But the Westerners are there with their shovels and their picks, and are trying to dig up the pavement to get that root out. <laughs> Other than, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're just going to whack that thing off. Every thought that comes up, we're going to remember to see that thing and just say, no, I'm going to have a wholesome, happy thought right now. And this is the whole practice, because that practice of changing the mind is going to bring about a feeling of uh, safety, security, and satisfaction, which is exactly opposite of the dukkha. And when we know that we can do this, that brings in the Sama Sankapa, and to now we're practicing the Eightfold Noble Method correctly. And when we do that, we gather together the factors for the mind to make the mind samati. What is that? Number one item on the list, removal of these unwholesome thoughts. The hindrances have to be out of the mind. That's the number one first job. No other job is important other than that. But that one job, even though we have to do it many times over and over again, it takes only about a tenth of a second to do that job. Mm -hmm. Why? Because as soon as we see that thought, the next thought is going to be, aha, I see you. 
and now we're out of it. But if we're not paying attention, that thought will stay and stay and ruminate and run and run and run. And then we say, aha, I see you. And as soon as we see it, it's like, aha, I see you and become right out of it. Yeah. So uh, we practice this over and over and over again to get the mind cleaned out. And when we do that and gladden the mind, the other factors come into play. The next one is the sukha. After that, doing it over and over again, the pity arise. There is another feature, and that is, is that we're actually, by the sati, we're applying the mind into wholesome, and the job is to learn to sustain the mind into the wholesome. So we apply, sustain the mind with sukha and with pity, and with removal of the hindrances, and those are the five factors that are first jhana. Anyone can pass in and out of first jhana. Everyone passes in and out of first jhana on a regular basis. So when somebody says, oh, I attained first jhana, they don't know what they're talking about. What's the point? You're just bragging about something you don't even know. (laughs) But there are times when we are in that uh, now, there's an additional point to it that is uh, in the suttas, and that is when, when the mind is applied and sustained and we feel good and we feel uh, confident, also the body relaxes. Mm-hmm. Why does the body relax? Because if we don't have any anxiety, the body is not uptight, it's not tense anymore. So all of this has to do then with losing tension, losing anxiety. There's nothing to be gained. There's no bliss in there anywhere other than what you can manufacture because you know how to do it. That you are the boss of your own mind. But you, uh, no one has ever been taught that they are the boss of their own mind. They are taught that in fact, whoever is in the room who is an authority, they're the boss of your mind. Like the television is often the boss of people's mind or the principal at the high school or the teacher in the room or maybe the IRS. But we're always having some authority figure that's telling us how to think. And this is one of the reasons why we want to get into seclusion is so we can start uh, listening to the fact that all of this stuff that I tell myself to do, I learned it from the authorities. That who I am is nothing but a repetition of all the lies and the malicious gossip I've been told. Mm-hmm. That's who I am. And when I pull that stuff out, then I'm now a blank slate again. I'm nothing in particular anymore. Well, one of the things that the authorities are telling us a lot is what is important and what's not important. Mm-hmm. And so we go along to get along and we believe that things are important when in fact they're not. Little example of that. The little girl, about four years old, uh, has been playing with uh, Barbie dolls, but she got them in Thailand. They're knockoff. They only cost about 20 or 30 baht, which is about a dollar. And she loves to take the clothes off and she pulls the arms off. She's really investigating this doll. And so her aunt buys her a real Barbie doll with all of the outfits, cost about $60, $70. She gives that to the little kid. What does the kid do with this new Barbie doll? She pulls her hair off, she takes the clothes off, she pulls the arms off, and the aunt freaks out. What are you doing? That doll cost me $60, and here you are destroying it. What is she teaching that child? She's teaching the child importance. 
where the child was merely playing. Okay, so one of the things that we're going to be doing here is to recognize that a lot of the stuff that we thought was important is in fact not important at all. An example of that is what happens in a particular capital city between the politicians in that capital city really don't affect your life very much until you think about it. Then you can get really all hot and bothered and mm -hmm. champion and go do this, that, and the other thing to, uh, to get your way because you feel bad because of the thoughts about what's happening out someplace else. But the reality is that what's happening right here in front of you is okay. It's not dangerous. The room you're in is not dangerous. Right here, right now is okay. Why do we not just allow ourselves to feel okay when things are okay? Why do we have to think about what some authority figure told us to think about? We can pay, have the thoughts we want to have. And if we have the thoughts that we want to have, naturally we're going to have very wholesome, happy thoughts. Yeah. So when I tell students they can feel the way that they want to feel, how would you feel if you could feel the way that you wanted to feel rather than feeling the way that you're supposed to feel? Yeah, relaxed, happy. Yeah, relaxed and, and happy. Chilled out. Not a, right, chill. I like that word. That's the word that in Nepali is nibbana. Just, it just means to just chill out. The word was used by the uh, by the people of the Buddhist time in reference to domesticated animals. Like, for instance, the dogs that are barking and fighting with each other are hot, but the dogs that are laying on the floor like this one, they're chill, they're cool, they're nibbana. Another way that the word was used was when food comes out of the fire, it's too hot to eat. It needs to cool off or nibban before it's eaten. Okay, so these are the two ways that it was originally used. And the Buddha says, hot dog, I know what, how to use that word. Because in English, we have that same word. It means to kill. Chill, baby, chill. Cool off. Okay, calm down. <laughs> we tell ourselves that in our language, but when we hear the word Nibbana, we got to make it super, super special. <laughs> way up there, some high word, rather than, no, I can Nibbana anytime. Just... <sighs> Forget all about it and just let it be easy. So this is the basic practice. And then uh, and that it is possible. For anyone with practice to remove those hindrances from the mind. We can do that. You do it on a regular basis anyway. Now we're going to intentionally do it to intentionally watch what kind of thoughts we have. Which means that we're going to be developing two different kinds of skills now. The rudimentary skills of the Eightfold Noble Path or the Eightfold Noble Method, when applied to Anapanasati, bring on a new skill. And that new skill is the ease of getting into this state. This, this, how easy it is, how quickly can we get in ourselves in the state of sukha? Get ourselves into a state of satisfaction and then the second skill is how long can we maintain that so basically we're looking at the skill of applying the mind and the skill of sustaining the mind and when we apply it to these skillful things and we say and we sustain it then those are the major skills that we need to be able to maintain the first jhana 
Now, first jhana does not mean uh, thoughtless. It means wholesome thoughts. That we're not ready for un, uh, for no thought at all, but we don't even need to get to ourselves to that. But we do need to get the mind that if we can apply it to the wholesome and sustain it to the wholesome, then this is what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa calls a mind that's fit for work. A mind that's fit for work. Wow, wait a minute. I thought that the, the only goal was to get into first jhana. No, we've gotten to first jhana so that we can get the mind fit for really the work that needs to be done. That in fact, jhana was something that happened a lot before. In fact, the Buddha references that he could do that when he was a child. The first jhana is a common, it's not a big deal. Anyone can do it, but uh, getting into it and then sustaining it that's a, a deeper skill to be able to maintain that state of mind. But what the Buddha did not do in his youth when he had the, the first jhana, he thought that like everybody else, oh, well, once you get first jhana, the next thing to do is to get second, and then the third, and then the fourth, and we begin to climb the ladder of um, goals and success. And he made that same mistake. And that's why he at one time thought that even as high as all the jhanas that he could go, they didn't have any value because it didn't solve the problem of suffering. Why? Because when you come out of the jhanas, there you are again, back into one's regular crap. Right. And so uh, the real teaching of the, of the Buddha then is not the first jhana, but what to do in the first jhana. What to do when the mind is fit for work. Okay, so we can talk about that at a later time, but I want to get the thing introduced that we're going to be getting the mind fit for work so okay. that we can put it to work. And what you could say uh, in shorthand is what we're going to do once the mind is fit for work is to do the noting that the Mahasu method was doing, but they were doing it dry. Okay. They didn't have the skills. And so what they are noting is the dukkha. Well, if you've got no dukkha, now what are we going to note? Reality. Mm. The things the way the things really are. And so that's uh, getting the mind fit for work means we've got it sharp enough that we can continue. And so the first part of the job then is to keep monitoring the mind and bringing the wholesome thoughts back one after another, and when the mind wanders away, never mind, start again, come back, take a deep breath, start uh, watching the breath, and begin to feel good. That's the teaching. That's the teaching for applied. So we apply the mind to the wholesome, and then we sustain it, gladden the mind, we begin to feel good, we feel relaxed, and we get the attitude, I can do this. And so that's the basic introduction to Anapanasati. In, in this, we have covered step nine, step 10, step five, step six, step four, step one. We've, we've already been covering all of those things of Anapanasati, but we haven't been using it by the numbers. We've been just talking about it in a more natural way. Yeah. And so we'll talk about what to do with Anapanasati once we have the uh, uh, the the body relaxed, the feelings of pity and sukha, 
and a mind that is only having wholesome thoughts, now what do we do with it? Now we're going to investigate how the mind works. Now we're going to investigate how the mind gets into dukkha. This is the thing that we're going to do with it, which means that now, finally, after all of this preparation with Anapanasati and getting ourselves into the third noble truth and using the, uh, the Eightfold Noble Method to get ourselves there, now what we're going to do is we're going to do a deep dive and a deep investigation into the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. What does the mind do that creates the suffering? And we can only do this in a lab that is absolutely clean. Right. Just like um, just like in, in research, in biological research, they have to have a clean room. Or even if they're doing, um, let us say, uh, doing computer chips, they need a clean room so that they can work with just that. Okay, so uh, in order to see reality, we have to remove all the dukkha first so that we can actually see what's going on. This is the job then, once the mind is in first jhana, is, is that we've got a job to do and we've got the mind fit for work so that we can do it. So we'll talk about more of this at a later time, but okay. this is the idea of where this is going for you. But all we need to do is just remember yeah. that I don't have to do what I was doing before. I can do something that is enjoyable instead, having happy thoughts. Yeah. So um, I imagine that you can do this, that you could practice this. I think you can do it. Uh, next time we'll talk about schedules and all of that kind of stuff. But right now, uh, you can just continue to do whatever practice that you've been doing, but you can incorporate this new stuff into it. Okay. All I right. Will. So when are you going to call again? Probably a week. Okay. Weekends are good. Okay. On, on uh, 9 o'clock on Saturday morning, our time, which is uh, Friday evening, there is a Sangha call. And uh, uh, we have, uh, all yesterday was five or six people on it. I'm just jotting right. that down. Right. So that it, would be, it, what, what time? That's nine? It's six o'clock Pacific okay. and nine o'clock Eastern at nine o'clock Thai time uh, uh, during regular time and daylight saving time. Central time is 12 hours, but in uh, uh, regular time, the winter time, uh, Eastern time is 12 hours. I don't know. Where, where do you live? I live in Winnipeg. Winnipeg is Eastern time zone. No, wait a minute. Winnipeg. No, that's uh, uh, that's in Central because it's right across from Detroit. Central. Yeah. Yeah. OK, so you're in Central time. So that that would mean that uh, that it would start at eight. Okay. On Friday evenings. Hmm. Yeah. So how do I get the link if I wanted to join in for that? I'll I'll send it to you. But if you've already seen the videos, every description now, the newer videos all have the description for the link. Okay. Sangha US and Sangha UK. Okay. Oh yeah, I did see the Sangha UK. I don't think I saw the US one, but I just might not have noticed. Yes, okay. the Sangha US. 
Okay. Danny is running the Sangha UK. Well, actually, we have two of them. One's on Sunday afternoon, which is uh, UK time, but that's the middle of the night for you. <laughs> I'll pass on so, that one, but uh, I said right. that one sounds good. Yeah, the one at eight on Friday evenings, you're invited yeah. to join us there. Okay, Susan, well, this has been a really enjoyable time. I've enjoyed our conversation. I'm glad Thank to see you so nodding and smiling. Indicates that you're hearing what I have to say. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate right. it so much. Well, I hope to be good friends. That that's what the Dhamma, I haven't even talked about that, but the real Dhamma is all about friendship anyway. For you to learn to become friends on the inside so that you can finally learn to be friends with people on the outside. Beautiful. So we'll see you later. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.